Welcome back to ASD, A New Perspective, the podcast show where we help you understand what is going on in the mind of your child. And we encourage you that growth for your child is possible. I'm Kat Lee, and in this week's podcast, Dr. Gutstein continues his series, Why RDI and What Is It, with part two. Let's listen in. What do we know? Right? What do we know? We know that, okay, so let's look at it that way. So we know from developmental psychology that it's a years long gradual developmental process. We're gradually, and it can be a very respectful process, it can be a very collaborative process, where both parties are engaged in, in wanting the same thing, right? Developing the mind to develop premise, increasing their agency in the world, the ability to influence their world through the use of their mind. That's what gives human beings their egg, right? It's not our physical process. We can't run faster than jaguars. We can't climb trees better than, you know, animals. What we can do is use that part of our mind, right, to improvise, to use experiences in the past and rapidly match them to what we're dealing with, knowing that we can then look at what's sustained and what's different. That flexibility, that mental flexibility, that mental agility that we have, that's what gives human beings the evolutionary edge in the world. That's why how we've succeeded and continue to evolve. And in this century, in the 21st century, as we see, that's become, I mean, that's just gone through the roof in terms of the need for it, right? Um, there's always going to be a need for what we might call the traditional static intelligence. There's always going to be some degree of it. But more and more, that's being taken over by artificial intelligence, right? Those abilities. Or you have the tools right there to get information that you, you don't have to store it in there. And it's it's come you know in each decade it's just less and less valuable, less and less necessary, and there are fewer situations where we can get by with it, <laughs> right? And we have more and more of a need for what, we call, what I call dynamic intelligence. Okay, so what do we know? Let's go back to autism. So there's this incredibly important relationship that I call the mind-body relationship. Other people, there's all kinds of terms. One of the things about these fields, and I'm talking about across a number of different fields, from anthropology to education to psychology, et cetera, et cetera, is everybody has their own names for everything. But I think straightforward and mind-guiding relationship makes the most sense to me, right? Mental apprentices, right? Makes the most sense to me, all right? So this mind-guiding relationship is essential over the years, and it evolves. It has to evolve. It has to develop. The apprentice has to take on more responsibility for it. Bring, you know, have experiences, bring them back, process them on their own, start to use peers to do that over time, right, et cetera, et cetera. There's an evolutionary process where you become more self-guiding, never necessarily losing that need for others, whether it's when you're married, whether it's having good friends, to help you with that. There's never a lot, there's never, you know, the goal is not to become completely independent, right? But to be able to experience that both personal and interpersonal agency. So anyway, um, let's go back to autism. Okay, so what do we know? We know that people with autism don't develop this complex dynamic operating system that I call dynamic intelligence. But the other thing that's not controversial, when we go now refer to what we call the uh, infant-toddler research on children who have not yet been diagnosed but then are followed through or retrospectively looked at, who wind up, who go on to develop autism. Of course, we have many, many, many studies, about hundreds of studies now, 
And again, what do they what do they tell us? Just like we go through, there's an enormous diversity in in these infants, and, and you know, you're not going to find one vulnerability that people tried so hard. You know, it's this it's sensory, it's motor, it's, they weren't able to do it. There isn't one thing, one cause of autism, right? It's a pathogenetic, what we call pathogenetic problem, where initial a number of initial potential vulnerabilities can combine in different ways to form a common loss of a, of a developmental pathway. Path, we're talking about the loss of a pathway, right, of development, in this case, the loss of a dynamic intelligence pathway, right? And the one thing that is incontrovertible, that is among all that diversity, right, is that these children, these infants, these toddlers, are unable to, to contribute what's needed. I mean, it's a mutually, it's a mutually contributing relationship so that parents can form with them a mind-body relationship and never able to do that. And that's this, and, and again, a unique quality of autism, right, is that parents, by and large, can be excellent, can have great success with their other siblings who, are, who don't have this problem, can do everything they initially, because eventually it gets very distorted, but initially other things you would ever expect from a parent, and still completely fail to form this mind-guiding relationship with a child who isn't providing their part of what's needed in the relationship, their part being, right, um, one, um, the growth, what we call growth-seeking motivation. And what, what, what we mean by that is the desire to try to new experiences, to encounter novelty, to explore in, in, in a um, productive manner, to, um, right, to continue to try to do more, right? You know, I have uh, a four-month-old grandchild with me now, right? and uh, uh, I have a four-month-old, I have an almost three-year-old, and I have a six-year-old. And it's really fascinating in different parts. My, my four-month-old, you have to be still very sensitive. The growth-seeking is, is starting to emerge, but she's still, you know, we, I talk about these two motivations. One is stability-maintaining. If any of you have been separate of severe trauma or crisis, you know that you're not really interested in growth for a while. You want to hug under the bed and everything the same. You know, that's stability-maintaining. If you're dealing with a two-month-old infant, you know that if you pick them up too quickly, if you move around, if there's too much noise, they, they lose it, right? They, they want to maintain stability. Now, yes, they are learning and such, but basically if you're a parent, intuitively you're experiencing the need to maintain a continuous environment, right? You're not thinking about what they're going to learn, to feed them, to keep them satisfied, but that gradually starts to change. I have a four-month-old now, so who is, who is sort of in that transitional point because she doesn't have a lot of any agency. She can't really use her hands yet to hold things and explore them herself. She doesn't feel very competent in the world. She doesn't want, you know, she doesn't want to be sitting there just bored to death, you know, with the same things over and over again. She loves the variation. I can pick her up and say we're flying. I can do up and down, add little variations. And she gets happy and she indicates with, with her smile. And she's also more expressive than, you know, with a two-month-old, it's very difficult to know, you know, you know that you got to change your diaper and do this stuff. But little subtle things, you, you, there is no, not much subtlety there. Um, you either keep them happy or they're not happy or they're upset. But with her, you can tell there's much more of a range of expression and, and, and communication, even at four months, to let you know how you can make an adjustment 
or something you're doing is working, right, to keep going. So we start to see the onset of growth season very early. And, of course, that just takes off and takes off later on. The more they have some agency themselves, the more they can use their bodies to move, to hold things, the more confidence they have, the more they want to expand it and, and, and you know, master new things and, and try out new things. And the more resilience they have as well when things don't work out. And that's my two, almost three-year-old who, you know, falls down about eight times a day. And if you took her to the emergency room, they'd probably call children for protective services because she's one big bruise. She grew very fast. Her body is bigger than her ability to control it right now at this point in her life. That's getting better, but at this point. So she's like a mess. She's like one big bruise. But that's not stopping her. <laughs> More challenges. The goal of guiding her is to hold her back from, you know, destroying herself, basically. It's not to push her into it. But uh, it's a different time. So anyway. What do we know? The researchers, so we're talking about hundreds of studies, we know lots of research all over the world, done by so many groups, by, by the midst of, middle of the second year. It's very clear that the mind-guiding relationship has not been formed, that in fact things are moving in the wrong direction in terms of that. That parents are unable, despite how great they may be, and of course you get a normal range of parents and, with autism, it doesn't having a child with autism make, doesn't make you necessarily a great parent. You can be a lousy parent, you can be the best parent in the world, normal range. But it doesn't matter because whether you're the best or the worst, I mean, it may matter. I shouldn't say that; it may matter to some degree. But in terms of forming a guide, my guiding relationship, it doesn't matter because it does take two people who are contributing. And I always use the analogy of, which may not be perfect, but the guided missile or launching a rocket into space where you have both a guidance system and you have the rocket engine supplying that raw energy, you know, and to think about growth seeking, that desire for growth seeking is that energy. And you think about the parent is sort of the, initially as the guidance system. It, it sort of breaks down a little bit, but, but it gives you a very sort of gross way of thinking about the fact that you have, you can't have one without, if you take away one of them, it's not going to work, right? I don't care how good the guidance system is, if the rocket engine isn't operating, forget it. I don't care how good the rocket engine is. If there's no guidance system, it's just going to be a failure. So I think that's a nice sort of simple way to explain that, right? And what the researchers show is that there's a disengagement process. There's a failure to use parents as guides to learn about the world. That's powerful. I mean, these are powerful data. These are not subtle. And that's despite all the differences in the early vulnerabilities. So what do we know? We know that the, the, the mind-guiding relationship isn't is, what's universal is it's not forming, and we can see that very early on, right? We know that it's essential to develop the type of mental operating system you need to succeed over, over the years, to learn to succeed in more and more complex dynamic situations, right? So that if we're going to help people with autism to have well-being in their lives, the majority of them, we have to provide them with the means to be competent, to be successful in what is what is occurring as the predominant way of operating in the real world, right? Now, 500 years ago, things were not so, things were sort of simple and static. If you were a peasant, you know, somewhere in Europe or a villager in South America, things were repetitive. You did the same thing pretty much every day. You could learn, you know, there were some people who probably had more dynamic intelligence, but there were probably more places where people had been. Um, but now there isn't any place for you, right? There are no, you know, some forget assembly lines and forget all the things that robotics are replacing when kids are growing up. There's going to be nothing for them. Um, 
right? You have to have that mental flexibility. You have to be able to learn powerfully from experience, especially how it applies to you and the situations that keep changing in your life. It's not like you're learning about one situation because you're encountering new situations all the time. You're adapting in new ways all the time. You have to learn how to use imagination, not just have one, but use it productively. You have to learn how to be in a co-regulatory environment where things are going to be somewhat unpredictable and how to be able to rapidly adapt and improvise with people and by yourself. So, you know, these are not, the, if you don't have, if you don't develop these things over the years, and again, it's a years-long process, there's no way you're going to have well-being in life. I don't care how much, you know, savant ability you have. And again, yes, I know that people say, well, you're happy and you're alone and all the things. And, and, you know, the other thing is you can hear stories where people are artificially supported, you know, they're dependent on somebody's benefic- you know, be- beneficence, Somebody provides a niche for them. Somebody provides a program for them. Oh, somebody's doing an employment thing for people with autism where they're employing 13 people. Well, that's really good. But what happens if that person goes out of business? And what happens if, in fact, the reality is that 99% of employers aren't going to do that around the world? What do you do then? You can plead and you can get angry and say, you must do that. And people with autism sometimes form groups and they say that. And the employer says, no. <laughs> they don't even know about it, but if they do, they say, no, we're not going to. Too bad. A few will say yes, but what's the odds of getting that, and what's the odds of those people that then you sort of get stuck depending on them? You're not filling your own agency. You depend on the beneficiaries of that person, that environment, to provide that for you. And that's pretty scary, right? And again, all the vast majority of adults or, or children are going to face a world where, where nobody's going to do that for them. But they may even do things that make it worse, you know? Um, you, you can't assume that that's going to be there. So here's the deal. These kids are not providing the energy. They're not providing, you know, as infants, the, the feedback, the information you need, et cetera, et cetera. Fighting relationship isn't formed over the years. The ability to learn from experience, to co-regulate with others, to learn to improvise, adapt, use your imagination, these things aren't gradually growing and developing. This is a gradual process to get to a very sophisticated level that we need as an adult. And so what happens is they get thrown out. They, they leave school, some very successful in school, remember, and they can't function. And so you see, you see things like study where, uh, a really important study where they showed that each year that, that these people with autism were out, of, were, were out in the real world, their odds of attaining a meaningful employment decreased. Rather than learning from experience and figuring out the system, they actually, by 10 years out, they were in incredibly bad situations. Each year was worse because they would get discouraged and discouraged, and they weren't able to learn from those experiences. They weren't able to figure out, what is, how does that apply to me? What do I have to do to adapt? What does that mean? How does that make sense? They didn't have those abilities developed over years and years to do that. Um, so, right? So, um, what happens then is, you know, when we go, let's go back to the other intervention programs, right? Um, and that's why when people say, you know, compare RDI to them, it's very, very hard because how do you compare it? Because they don't even intend to do any of those things. They don't develop intrinsic motivation. They don't believe they can. They don't know how. They don't talk about it or they don't do it. But it has to be developed. That what I call that growth seeking has to be activated. They don't understand. They don't come from a remedial point of view where they recognize that people with autism have the capacity to develop, 
through my guarding relationship. It's just they didn't have the opportunity for the relationship, right? And it's not that they can't form dynamic intelligence, so we don't want to give them, you know, uh, air spots or, or very sort of pathetic little skills that don't in any way resemble what we do in the real world to be successful, right? Social stories and skills and things like that that aren't effective at all, don't do anything. We don't want them to be dependent on the benevolence of their well-meaning peers or employers or family members their whole lives and, and feel dependent on those people, right? And that's it. We don't want that relationships. We don't want that relationships based on pity or based on their illness. And, and, and we want to empower them. And what I mean by that is I don't want people with autism to identify primarily as autistics. I think that's one of the most tragic things I've seen, and, and, and partly due to the internet, is you see groups of people with autism, and I'm not talking about denying you have it, which is very different. I'm talking about people saying, that's my primary identity, you know? Whether I'm a nice-tempered person, empathic, whether I hate you, whether I'm a people person, non-people person, whatever, is somehow that this, this, um, in, this lack of a mind-guiding relationship is the thing that is the primary in your life. Well, it shouldn't be. And, of course, what we try to do is say, no, and when I ask you to deny it or to say it wasn't challenging, but you're a person who has a unique identity. You're a person who, you know, I have, um, Rochelle and I talk a lot about the kids we've seen who are now are adults, and they're as different as night and day in terms of what they're doing. And all they're just people. And they don't all know that they've, what they've struggled, been through. But, you know, I have one guy I was just talking with who, uh, is in three hard rock bands, and he's formed them. And, you know, I hate the music, I have to hate, but, you know, it's it's a genre. And he loves it, and he just, he has no idea how he's going to support himself a year from now, and he's not worried about it. He says, I'll do it, I've always done it. Another guy's a banker who just got married in New Jersey, very solid banker-type guy. Another guy, you know, is working on a classified project in out west somewhere working for the Defense Department doing God knows what, highly secret, classified stuff. Another guy's a, a, a classical musician here in Houston, does a lot of gigs. Um, you know, it, it just, you know, endless series of things. And they're all different. Some of you people, more people persons, and, you know, they just love being around people. Some are less, like anybody else. Some are introverted. And they, that's, they, they figure out who they are as human beings. One of the aspects is the autism, but really, thinking about the autism being... The failure of a mind-guiding relationship, and now they have it, that's not a really good definition for them anymore. They can think about the vulnerabilities that are still there that contributed to the loss of that. You know, some people may have more sensory issues and, and live with those or more this or that. Some people don't. Um, so they look at the, but, but that's more like what we all should be doing, is looking at our limitations, our vulnerabilities, our strengths, which we can do something about, which we can't, right? But So all of stuff's having much of a meaning for them, doesn't it? They're not denying it. They've known it. Their parents, but what is it, right? Um, and so I think we're the only ones who try to do that as well, and 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 to form collaborations. You know, I was thinking about there's a whole group of people who've been through ABA now, adults who are really getting angry about it on the internet. Cat was talking about that. Other people who are like upset with what was done to them, and it's because a lot of these treatments treat them as objects. They're like things done to them, right? And what's different here? One thing you can say is different is. RDI, it's not that we, we follow the child's lead, which is insane. If you're a parent, you think you're nuts to do that. But yes and no. But um, but that we respect 
everybody. We empower, we try to empower them. We try to provide agency for children within limits, right? And we try to build that agency, and we try to build more gradually, more of a collaboration. And as much as possible, have the child understand what we're doing together. Right? Now, there's an initial step where we're having to form a guiding relationship, sometimes, very often, with children who have formed powerful defense mechanisms because of their experience against engaging like that. And also parents who are very wounded, right, who are very frightened of it. Right? But especially in those cases, we're not going to assume there's going to be initial collaboration, right? But we're not going to be forced. You can't force someone into a relationship like that either. You have to provide experiences sometimes. But we start those experiences, and they don't even want to be in them. But we need to have them experience it where they can experience how they can have more agency, where they can be more competent as a result of the guidance, as a result of the engagement, right? And then gradually, once that growth seeking starts to kick in, then it becomes more mutual, then it becomes more exciting. So there's, a, you know, there's an initial stage of having to prepare people to form that relationship, which is probably one of the most crucial stages. Then the next stage, which is learning to use that relationship and over a period of years to form dynamic intelligence, to form something. And then a real critical stage where you start to transfer that to the child, adolescent, to become more self-guiding or you know, relying on others, right, to do that as well. There's just sort of different stages as an evolution of this process, which I don't see. And then there's a lifelong support that we want to provide. There's also an RDI, of course, so we use things like uh, the, the, the um, online, you know, uh, cloud storage for knowledge. We try to say, well, there's certain parts of this process of dynamic intelligence that can be what we call a hybrid. doesn't have to all be in your head. And that's what we're all doing, by the way. It's not any different than modern people are doing, like the way we use the Internet, the way we use Google, the way we use databases. And we use that for personalizing knowledge, which I think all people should do. So, you know, there are other aspects of RDI that I think are very creative, very innovative as well. But, but I think that there's so much of a difference in the aspect of saying, look, just because you have this diagnosis, right, doesn't mean that this can't, we can't remediate, that we can't form a guiding relationship that you can gradually learn. Now, one thing that's very difficult, what are the obstacles to RDI? We can talk to people about that. One is that underlying all this, there's still a belief that people with autism can't be, that you can't have remediation, that you can give them a little compensation skills, right? But that you can't address, right, the, the underlying, what we call dynamic intelligence issues. The second issue has to do with the political or historical hold, uh, from, and, and that is more related to ABA, to some degree teach as well, where psychologists imported programs that at that point in time were limited to people with more moderate to severe mental retardation, which was not used, but that's the term that was used, and said, well, these are children with autism who have moderate to severe mental retardation. I remember back years ago, when I was first getting into the field, in the early 90s already, Gary Mesodog, who was um, one of the heads of the TEACH program under Eric Schoeffler, said to me, Steve, one of the things you have realized is the vast majority of these kids are mentally retarded that can in turn intellectual disability we use now. Um, and he was wrong. He was wrong, but, but the fact is he took this program, Teach, that had some value, they thought it had some value with those more 
significantly impacted kids with more, and, and, and just threw it into uh, autism. And um, what the behaviors did was they took a program that they were using with schizophrenics in state mental hospitals when they were confined in Hillsborough before they developed Thorazine and things like that, that decreased negative behaviors. And they took that and said, well, we're going to use it for people with autism. So there's been a history, just like Alan Greenspan took child psychoanalytic play therapy, which is what the time is. Believe me, I, I had um, intensive supervision in this when I was at Rutgers Medical School um, during my postdoc year in doing it, actually. Not with autism, because it doesn't make any sense. And said, well, let's just throw that in. It's like these kids have been, for, for many years been treated like, well, you know, you can't help them anyway, so just let's try this, let's try this, let's try this. You know, things like Lego therapy. <laughs> but, um, it, but, but it, so that's the other obstacle, is these sort of powerful enfranchised, right, interventions or whatever you want to call them that have, you know, convinced a lot of people that have no place in the field. They have nothing to do with what the needs are of this population, but have enormous power, right? ABA has no no absolute, absolutely no place in the process of developing, right, what we need for well-being. Absolutely not. They don't, they don't even think about developing those things. And yet, they are still the predominant, right, intervention. So you have this entrenched power that doesn't want to give up, like always, right, and economic reasons, you know, all kinds of reasons, right? You have these implicit beliefs that people with autism are autisms, <laughs> not just people, like people with learning disabilities or AD. And so the, the, no one has even tried to remediate until we did a formal relationship, guiding relationship, and instead they give them these compensations. Or they, you know, they, they, they try to uh, advocate for them and say, well, the world has to adapt to them, and which is great for everyone. I wish the world would adapt to me too. But it's unlikely to happen for most people. And I have to think about people in Uganda as well as people, you know, in New Zealand who have a great system. People in Uganda, ain't going to be no government adapting or around. There's not going to be any government adapting them or, you know, most of the world. If we're going to have a program that's going to help, if we're going to help these millions of kids or adults, whatever, we can't assume it's based on advocacy for the for others to do it for them, to set up environments for them. They have to, be, they have to develop their own ability. Now, there's a halfway point where, unfortunately, it's not happening, where another big obstacle, which is the way we learn, where typical children learn through their guided experiences, is they're able to be in environments. Parents are able to curate, I call curators, set environments that are just a little bit more challenging than what they're, you know, capable of with the support, right? Once you get past a certain point of early development in, in our society, People not just never get, they're not allowed to do that. They're thrown into school. They're thrown in here and there. And the older they get, the worse it is. They, they, they never practice environments. There's never growth environments. There's never mastery environments. They don't get opportunities to gradually develop. And I think the, that, to me, is one of the biggest obstacles we all face, and, and something I would explain to people, is we have to provide children, any child, any child, for growth. With environments, we have to curate some experiences that are challenging but not overwhelming, that are carefully, you know, done so that there's a potential for growth. Not that they're always going to grow or even the way they, but if we don't, if their day is one of being overloaded, overwhelmed, or sort of just given more garbage to do, right, more static things to do, we're not going to see any growth. 
thank you, Dr. Gutstein, and thank you for joining us for ASD, A New Perspective, the podcast show where we help you understand what is going on in the mind of your child. And we do continue to encourage you that growth for your child is possible. I'm Kat Lee. See you next time.